0: You're listening to audio from Praxis Church, Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Matthew 6, verse 19 through 24. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Yeah, it's weird and wild to be back in Kelowna. Uh, tons of memories. And uh, even being in this, uh, in this building, we were uh, reflecting uh, yesterday, we had... Uh, my son Tim and I, who's hiding in the back corner back there, had lunch with uh, Grandpa Lynn and uh, remembered uh, 25 years ago when we arrived here as much younger people uh, and now how, man, how the years passed. But honestly, uh, it was 25 years ago or maybe 24 years ago that this building first opened up as Garden Valley Church. Uh, that church plant started uh, the year before we arrived here in 1996. Uh, Jeff and Brendan Newfeld came up, and long story short, some of you who know the history had moved in here and uh, partnered with Willow Park over those years, and then just things that have come and gone over the years. And it is so cool uh, to see a group of people gathering in this building again and uh, gathering for worship. And just, we have been praying for you a lot. Uh, One of the big uh, burdens and visions that Northview has is to come alongside and help uh, get new churches planted. Uh, The pandemic has sucked. Have you agreed with that? The pandemic sucks, yeah. Uh, But even before the pandemic, I don't know if you know this, uh, but prior to COVID, three to 400 churches in Canada were closing the doors every year for the very last time. So on average, one per day, uh, seven days a week, uh, 365 days a year. That was the average before the pandemic. And we are waiting to see what the effects, of course, long term, we don't know what the effects of the pandemic on the life of the church is going to be. Uh, some of the early studies that are coming out, uh, primarily stateside right now, as information is not as uh, available here in Canada. But there, some estimates are saying we've probably lost a third of the church. Uh, through the pandemic, and only time will tell. And I can tell you this that uh, pastors are discouraged. Uh, a lot of churches have closed in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, some guys are resigning. Uh, churches have split, uh, in my opinion, over stupid issues. Uh, why would you break fellowship over something as dumb as a health issue? That's my opinion, and if you uh, disagree with that, that's fine. I'm a guest. I'm leaving after the sermon, so that's great. (Laughter) But anyway, it's it's kind of a sad day w- that we're in, but it's been fun to be part of it, and it's really cool, therefore, to see uh, a church like Praxis getting their, their roots and getting the roots down deep in a Bible-teaching church in a community, and every community across Canada needs more Bible-teaching churches. Uh, so we're encouraged by that starting. Uh, it's been fun to partner with... Primarily replanting situations in the last couple years. So some of you who are part of the Mennonite Brethren world more long-term will know some of these stories. So Culloden Church in Vancouver is one of the old historic MB churches, closed their doors last fall, uh, gave it over to a church plant, uh, been able to help them get started again, and there's about 300 people gathering in that old church building uh, in East Van, which is cool. Dawson Creek, a church that stood empty for seven years a building just standing there and uh, was privileged just to send a couple up just, they moved up last month to Dawson Creek, Lord willing to see a new church started by the fall up in Dawson Creek. And so these replanting stories are very cool, but this one, uh, a, a new church getting off the ground is awesome. So anyway, all that, just welcome, glad to be here. Uh, old stomping grounds for us for sure, our house is just a mile up the road, North Glenmore was where our kids went to school, so it's like, yeah, memory lane, you're like, yeah, you sound like an old man. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Old man, lots of memory. So, anyway, it's always a challenge as a guest speaker uh, to jump into uh, the middle of a series and into an audience that I don't really know, and I don't know what the Spirit of God's been doing in your life through this series. And so, you're trying to piggyback into that. So, just to have been praying and trusting that the, the Lord has a word from this particular text. And then, literally, to jump into a text that you're assigned in the middle of a series, and you open this text and it deals with money. And I'm like, thanks, Josh. That's a great <laughs> invitation. Uh, Why did you invite me in this particular text? Uh, But the next section in the Sermon on the Mount really deals with the question, uh, uh, underneath the text is the question, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? It's not really as much about money as it is about your trust in God or your lack of trust in God. So that's where we're going to go. So obviously, in this series, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, Jesus has already tackled a number of topics, uh, have come through, and now he, He deals with a major preoccupation in our culture, and that is the preoccupation with money. And without question, it is one of the hardest areas for people to release to God. I don't know why that is. Uh, probably harder than any other area in people's lives. In fact, I think it was Wesley who said, the last thing to get baptized is the wallet. That uh, You have that image of people going under the water and they're holding their hand up in the air with their wallet in their, in their hand. Uh, why is that? Uh, it's an area that causes a lot of worry for people, a lot of fear uh, around money, and, and actually a lot of conflict in people's lives. And yet you will also know that there is nothing like the freedom of trusting God and seeing Him come through and provide. And I'm sure if we had the chance to share some testimonies around the room that many of you could share testimony of where God in very miraculous ways came through and showed Himself faithful in providing for you when you were honoring Him and trusting Him. And I would say uh, it's a joy for me in this particular area that one of the areas my wife and I fought about a lot of things over the years, as I'm sure all of you did, uh, let's be honest. Uh, but money was one of the things we never fought about. And interesting for me was that both our parents raised us with the very same values. And I'm so grateful for that, that as little kids growing up in our homes as children, her mom and dad and my mom and dad trained us in the same biblical principles of stewardship and earning and saving and giving and those things. And so that particular area is one that we've never fought about. Uh, it has just been from day one of our marriage has been we you pay God first, you trust God, He provides, He'll take care of your family. And so uh, that's just a bit of my own personal testimony of how God has been faithful to us uh, in our marriage. So I don't know how you react when you see a text dealing with money. Uh, we can take a quick break and you can leave if you want. Uh, but I have been trusting and praying that God would have a word for each one of us uh, somehow through this text. So the Sermon on the Mount is really about realigning our worldview, and you you get that all the way through this text uh, because how you think how you think ultimately determines how you will live. How you think ultimately determines how you live so what we believe is going to be seen in our actions. And so, if you want to know what a person really believes, don't ask them what they believe. Just watch how they live their lives. Because how they live their lives will actually tell you what they truly believe. They can say whatever they want to say, but actions speak louder than words. And so, our minds are constantly in the need of being retuned and reset and renewed. It's like the defragging of the computer. So the hard drive that gets cluttered up and everything disorganized, and so you put it through this defrag, and it just organizes things again. And So Romans 12 is one of those key verses. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. That In testing that, you might discern what the will of God is, good and acceptable and perfect. Or an old quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, an interesting idea. Sow a thought, and you reap an action. So an action, and you reap a habit. So a habit, and you reap a character. So a character, and you reap a destiny. That it all begins with your mind. It all begins with how you think. And so, in this context, the crowds have begun to follow Jesus. And so he sits down with his disciples, and he begins to teach, really on this subject: How shall we live our lives, or what does kingdom life as a child of the King in The world of the kingdom of the earth that we live in, and yet living as aliens, as strangers, as exiles, as children of the kingdom in the midst of the earthly kingdom. What does it actually look like? And the overarching theme for the sermon was given back in chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, where Jesus began, just after the Beatitudes, that you are salt and you are light. And those two metaphors, as you will have studied, are contrast metaphors. That salt brings preservation, and that salt flavors And that light, of course, illuminates, and light, of course, is a great contrast. So if we could darken every light in this room, and it was pitch black, and you could light just one single match up here, every eye in the room would be drawn to that one little match, that one little light, because of the contrast to darkness. So so in other words, there should be a contrast in how Christians live out our lives daily. Now, I need to be really clear here, because this is very, very important, that it is not That Christians do a bunch of stuff the world doesn't do. And nor is it not that we don't do a bunch of stuff that the world does. And I don't know the homes that you were raised in, but the home I was raised in, my Christianity was largely about all the do's and don'ts, and primarily about all the don'ts. Don't, 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 don't. And I actually think it's a misunderstanding of the Christian life and the kingdom life. So we do all the things the world does. Now, you might feel a little uncomfortable with me saying that, but you do. You do all the things the world does. So, the world does money and sex and power. The world buys cars and houses. The world holds down jobs and participates in their community and tries to make the neighborhood a better place. The world pursues education and tries to advance their career. The world eats and sleeps and drinks. The world looks for entertainment through their hobbies and sports and the arts, the world engages on social media. Now, which one of those things that I named do Christians not do? Social media is the only one that Christians do not engage in social media. No, the world, we, we, the world does these things, and Christians do all these things. So the question is not that we do different things than the world does. The question is we do them differently. We do the very same things, that we, but we, we, we run to a, the beat of a different drummer. And so, Jesus has talked about how to handle anger, how to handle your sexual desire, Uh, what do you do when your marriage is facing conflict and trouble, you're facing divorce, how do you respond to enemies and people who harm you or offend you? And then in chapter 6, verse 19, he starts into this next critical topic, how does faith in God change our relationship to money and possessions and worry is the next chunk of it. Why do you worry? So a couple comments. Uh, some people get uneasy when it comes to talking about money, and I think that's, it's a shame. We shouldn't, because it is a very, very critical topic. And with the warnings that there are in Scripture, we should take it very seriously. And there, there are two areas in North America that people are, are, are concerned a lot about, sex and money. And I'll just tell you this, over the years of preaching, I can tell you uh, people love to hear a sermon on sex far quicker than they love to hear a sermon on money. There's something about sex, we're interested in it, we want to know what God has to say about it, we, we actually want to know, what does God have to say about this, and can I bring my life into uh, submission to him, and can I have a flourishing sex life? Like, Christians love to talk about sex, but you talk about money, and it's like, bang, empty house. And it's so interesting to me that so many people, and even men in particular, are willing to talk about all their sexual struggles, but when you bring up their finances, it's like they clam up, and it's like it's none of your damn business. And you're like, no, actually, it is God's business. Sorry, did I just say damn? Sorry about that. (laughs) So many warnings. Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. You've probably heard the story of J.D. Rockefeller, uh, one of the first billionaires in North American history, and he was once asked, once he has made his millions and millions, how much money is enough? And do you remember what his answer was? Just a little more. Just a little more. You'll never be satisfied. First Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving... Now, listen to this phrase. It's so critical. Some have wandered away from the faith. That is a shocking statement. In pursuing of money that I literally would walk away from my faith in Jesus Christ, well, that's what Paul says to Timothy. And they pierced themselves with many pangs. So with warnings like that, we should take it seriously. And then secondly, let's be honest, we deal with money every day. And so if we can't talk about it inside the church, and as Christian believers, brothers and sisters one another, where are we going to talk about it? As someone has famously said, money makes the world go round. You cannot live your life uh, without interacting with money. And so as a Christian, it would be dumb to try to pretend that money is not part of our lives. This somehow it's the unspiritual or it's the secular part of our life. I'll just leave that over here. This is my faith conversation. Let's talk about faith and money's just something over there. And the Bible has more to say about money, I don't know if you know this, than any other topic except God himself. Did you know that? The Bible has more to say about money than any other topic except God himself. So it must be a very, very important subject. Uh, You can go to the scriptures, and you can talk about these five major categories, how you earn your money, your work ethic, your choice of a vocation, and a calling, and a career. The Bible has a lot to say about being diligent workers. Uh, Your giving, of course, is talked about in the scriptures. Are you a generous person? Are you reflecting the very nature of God, the DNA of God, that God is a good God, he is a generous God, he is a giving God, and as his child, do you reflect the nature of your father? How much should you give, and how much should you keep? Let me ask you this question. What percentage of your income belongs to God? How much of it is God's? How much? 100 percent. There's the right answer. People debate this. Is it 2 percent? Is it 3 percent, which is the average that North American Christians give away, which is not much different than the average Canadian citizen, and the rest belongs to me. You're like, no, 100 percent belongs to God. I'm just a steward. Every penny I spend, I'm spending in honor of God or not in honor of God. Your' savings, you're investing, and Scripture talks a lot about preparing for the future and, and laying up for your children, etc. Those principles are there. You're spending. Uh, the warning that Jesus gives is, "Beware of this thought of the culture around you, that your life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess." Is that a challenging statement? Uh, if some of you have gone through the whole downsizing thing and you realize all this junk that we have, like, how much junk do we need? So, our house up the road here was, you know, 1,400 square feet and a full basement. And we filled the whole thing full of furniture. And then we moved to Vancouver to a 1,000 square foot condo. So, two-thirds of it had to go, right? And as we're getting rid of this stuff, giving it away and selling it and whatever, you're like, why did we have all this junk? And then we moved back into a house in Abbotsford and suddenly we have filled every room full of junk again. And eventually, I guess, we'll downsize and get rid of it all. So your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then finally, debt. Good debt and bad debt. How do you handle it? So if we simply ended the message right there, and I challenge you to go away and dig into the scripture for yourself on those five topics, it would be an important message. Because the Bible calls us to be a diligent earner, a generous giver, a wise saver and investor, a prudent consumer or spender. And a very cautious debtor. And I would say in that order of importance is actually how the Scripture teaches it. Don't rearrange the order, because that's actually how the Scripture teaches it. Earn it first, give it second, save it third, and then you deal with the rest. Or in summary, that the children of the kingdom should have a different relationship to money than children of the world. Okay, so all of that is introduction. Now we finally get to the text. You can start the timer on the message now. So Matthew 6, 19 to 24 is about money, but it is more than that, because the real question of the text is, who are you going to trust? Where am I putting my trust, or more properly, in whom am I trusting? So will I trust in God and his willingness to care for me and his ability to look after my needs, or is it my own wisdom, my own ingenuity, my own financial wizardry? And so the text is really straightforward. You could just read it say, take it home and apply it. It's quite straightforward. There are three simple points. The first one is this, invest where there are guaranteed returns because some things last and some things don't. So make sure you're investing where you have a guaranteed return. So the first couple verses say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Let's just pause right there. That's an interesting comment. Every single thing we own is deteriorating. You think about that? The new car that you drive off the parking lot immediately begins to deteriorate. And 10 years from now, you're like, this piece of junk, I just need to get rid of it, right? It deteriorates. It does not get better. Everything is in a process of spiraling down. So the new beautiful home that you build and you move until today, 20 years from now, you're going to be discontent with it because it's out of date, needs to be updated, the roof is leaking, and everything deteriorates, right? And if it doesn't deteriorate, somebody comes and steals it from you. So don't invest where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus basically says there is an investment house with rock solid guaranteed rates of return absolute guaranteed return on your investments. So you can choose to invest where you know it is going to be eaten up, it is going to be stolen, it's going to waste away, it is going to deteriorate, or you can invest your life, your time, your talents, your treasures, In places that last for eternity, in the Word of God, in the work of God, and in the people of God, the souls of men and women and boys and girls. So someone made the comment that there are only two things from this life that are eternal, that we're going to take with us into eternity. The Word of God is eternal. It lasts for eternal. It, It stands in the heavenlies, we're told. And the souls of men, women, boys, and girls... So in this room, the only two things that we're going to take with us into eternity, nothing else physical in this room except the people who are in this room and the Word of God in this room. So should we not be investing in those things? But note, it says, no matter where you invest, your heart follows your money. Now, that's a very interesting comment. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I know a lot of people who want to turn that comment around. But it's interesting that Jesus says it that way. It's not... That your money follows your heart. And you could say, well, yeah, the things I love, you know, my kids, and my grandkids, and blah, 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 my money follows it. But if you really want to know where your treasure is, follow the money. Look at the money. And in other words, if you want to change where your treasure is, just start investing some money there, and your heart will follow it. It's very interesting to me over the years as people have invited us to support them on various mission trips and et cetera and and long-term missions. And so we've got a couple projects that we've supported for a long time. And it's interesting to me that I have a heart that is now invested in North India. Why? Because I was sending a monthly contribution of my money there. And with my money went my attention, my prayers, my time, my interest. We have some kids who are serving in Germany. We send a monthly donation because for whatever reason, they need us to send them money. So we're sending our adult kids money. But with the money goes our prayer and our time and our attention. Our heart follows. It's reminded. Interesting principle. Secondly, before you invest your money, you better invest your mind. Verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light in you is dark. If the light in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? What, what Jesus is getting at here is where you put time and attention. In other words, what you put before your eyes, because the eyes are the entry point into the mind, and your mind matters. And so ultimately, whatever will shape the direction of your life, for good or for evil, is simple. It is the question of what are you filling your mind with? Your time and your attention, what is it that you're, you're focusing on? Because it will come out in your living. Absolutely sure. Whatever you fill your mind with, that is going to work itself out into your daily living. And then the third is really just a simple summary statement. You can't serve two masters. And Jesus is just so blunt. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So it's a really simple text. We could just wrap it up and say, done, go home and do it. But there are massive, massive implications in this text when you begin to work it out. Now, the Bible has so much to say about money, and I'd love to go into a lot of other texts, but if we just anchor it here and ask yourself some questions. So if you were to go home and talk to that person who's staring back at you in the mirror, that very familiar face, and just have a private conversation just between you and God and that person staring at you in the mirror, and ponder these questions. Where is your treasure, person in the mirror? What is the driving force of your life? What is it that is pushing me to achieve and to acquire and to own? Why why do I do the things I do? So I, I go to work so that I can pay the bills, so that I can have a a roof over my head and food on the table to eat so that I can be safe and secure and so I can rest and eat and I can go to bed and I can sleep so that I can get up to go to work, to pay the bills, to put some food on the table, to go to sleep, to go to work, to go to sleep, to eat, to go to work, to sleep, eat, work, sleep, eat, work. What is the ultimate end of that rat race and that cycle? Here's an important question. Has money taken a more important place in my life than it should have? And what is it I worry about, which is really next week's text. What do I worry about? And, and why do I worry? Is it fear? Is it fear of scarcity? I'm going to run out. I can't trust God. He won't look after me. Is it greed? My neighbor has more. I, I need what my neighbors have. It's the keeping up with the Joneses syndrome. Do I truly trust God's promise that he has promised to be my supply and therefore I have nothing to fear? Or the bottom line question of our text is, do I believe that God can be trusted? And that final question is really the heart of this text. Who am I going to trust? Will I trust that God is my provider, he is my protector, he is my supply, or am I going to trust myself? Am I going to rest that God is confident, that he knows my needs? As the text goes on to say, he he takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He, He looks after them. Surely he will look after you. Do I believe God? So the text is straightforward, that life in the kingdom is a life of joyful dependence and trust, that God will indeed take care of you. He will meet your needs, so you don't need to worry. Instead, you can get on with the important things of life. And tucked into those verses, there are a couple other thoughts, a couple reasons that I might choose to trust myself, not God. And the first one is there in that middle section. It it would be because I've got bad eyes. I I put it that way. I've got bad eyes. In other words, I have a misplaced worldview. I have a misplaced value system. And this is endemic in the culture that we live in, a short-sightedness. I've got my eyes on the here and now instead of on eternity. And so if I fill my mind only with earthly things and instead of eternal priorities, uh, I'm going I'm to go sideways in this, in this part of my, my faith walk. And Jesus' basic principle of life is that your heart is going to be where you treasure it. It's just that simple. It's absolutely true. So you should put your treasure where you really want your heart to go. You should put before your eyes the things that you want to treasure. And so you know this inherently. Uh, what does a person treasure? Just listen to them talk. That's all you need to do. Listen to your friend talk, listen to your family talk. What is it they talk about all the time? Is it buying and selling and flipping houses and amassing wealth and cars and homes and lands? Is it those things? Is it politics? Is it social issues that continually arise in conversation? Is it is it the plight of the poor in the world? And what's going on in the, in the global economy and the environment and the disparity between rich and poor? Is it the latest television show on Hollywood gossip? Like literally, what is it that your friends talk about? What is it that you talk about all the time? Because you love to talk about your treasure, the love of your life. The people you love, the things you love, it naturally comes out. So, is there a passion for Jesus that spills out in every conversation? Does ultimately every conversation somehow turn towards spiritual things and toward the things of the Lord? What God is up to in the world, of what they're praying about and how they're seeing God uh, come through for them and what they're learning from the Word of God, what what God said to me this morning from the Word, I just got to share this with you, And, and how evangelism is flourishing in so many parts of the world, not so much here in Canada. But in other parts of the world where the Muslim world, I don't know if you've done any reading on this, this, they're calling it a wind in the house of Islam, that by the tens of thousands, Muslims are turning to faith in Christ like never, ever before in the last 1,200 years of world history. The last 100 years, more converts among Muslim peoples than the last 1,000 years. You're like, why aren't we talking about those things, praying about those things, thanking God for those things? Or the great spiritual needs in Canada from both the rural to the urban neighborhoods and how the cultural change of our time might actually be forgotten. I'm going to throw up a screen, uh, Ed Stutzer put up this, he calls it a cultural river, and it is in his book uh, Christians in the Age of Outrage. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's a thought-provoking slide because on the left-hand side, the, the, the days of the past, so say 25, 30 and, you know, 50 years on past, was the North American culture that the vast majority of Christians, the vast majority of North Americans, rather, claimed to be Christian. Whether they were or not, in fact, was, didn't matter. I grew up in North America, and God we trust. I'm an American, I'm a Canadian, of course I'm a Christian. And then there was this little island, the cultural divide, and on the other side of it was this non-Christian group, other world religions, and a tiny little slice who claimed to be atheist, etc. And it was a good thing for the majority of our growing up years to claim to be Christian. Whether you were or not didn't matter. In our culture, it was a good thing. Oh, you're leaving the the house in the morning to go to church. Oh, you're probably a good neighbor. I like that I have church-attending neighbors. Why did every U.S. president, right up till the present one, one, claim to be a born-again believer? Whether they were or not didn't matter because it's a good thing politically to say I identify as a Christian. But the times, they are changing. And the mainstream is now moving away, so the cultural Christians and the congregational Christians, you know, those people that come at Christmas and Easter, and then along the bottom, 15-20% of the population has been convictional Christians, what Stetzer calls actively engaged in the life of the church, and that number has actually been pretty steady for the last 50 years. But what's happening now is a new cultural divide is coming into the river. And convictional Christianity is being pushed to the margins of society. We're we're really beginning to live in what 1 Peter calls the age of exiles, sojourners, aliens, and strangers. We're we're living like strangers in our own land. And even though North America, both Canada and the U.S., were founded on biblical principles, increasingly those principles are being thrown out, right? So it's no longer a good thing to identify with being a Christian. So people claim the fastest-growing religious identification is no religious affiliation. I don't claim anything. I don't claim to be a Christian because it's no longer a good thing. Why? Because those Christians are the haters. Those Christians are bad people. Those Christians are against abortion. They're against uh, human sexuality and flourishing and all those issues. And the days are going to be challenging us more and more. What I think is, however, that this is actually a really good thing for the church. Because it is going to become increasingly clear who is in and who is out. Because now, if you're going to choose to be a Christian, if you're going to continue to choose to gather like this publicly, you're going to choose to drive off your driveway and let your neighbors know that you're going to a house of worship on a Sunday morning, it is going to be an increasingly a marker on your life, oh, you're one of those people. And you stand out from the culture, not because you do different things, but we do things differently. We live to a different, the beat of a different drummer. There's a lot that could be said there, and I, I love talking about this stuff. We'll just keep moving on. Uh, that was a freebie. But if there's any question of where my heart is going to be drawn, and you ask that question, then Jesus paints this word picture. Make sure your eye is good. And what he's on about is our worldview, our value system. And it makes us step back and evaluate where is my eye focused. Is it on scripture or on culture? And there is no question that the culture that we live in is a culture that is driven by consumerism and materialism and sexuality and hedonism, uh, it doesn't matter where you go to live in North America, it's the same, Kelowna is no different than any other city in North America, driven by the same thing, sex and money, pleasure, uh, Kelowna, the, the specific issues may be in Kelowna, it might be, yeah, the lake and the ski hills in the winter, and golf and wine, and toys, 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 more toys. People come to the Okanagan for the good life, you know that, right? Yeah, when you live away from the Okanagan, it's so funny to hear people talk about the Okanagan, it's like it's so paradise, and I'm like, we live there, it's not paradise. a bunch of wingnuts living up in the Okanagan. But if we buy into what the culture says about money and things, then we have got lots to worry about. And so the obvious question is, well, how do you live in this culture and not get caught up in this culture? And the the answer is you've got to keep your eyes good. In other words, you must intentionally lift your eyes above the daily grind. And it's one of the, the key reasons it is so important for us to regularly gather with God's people. And whether it's a large gathering like this or whether it's over a coffee table with three or four Christian friends who you're going to talk about spiritual things and encourage one another and pray for one another. Because it is the only place you're going to consistently be reminded that the world's systems and the world's structures are guaranteed losers on the investment front. Is to sit down with Christian brothers and sisters and go, let me just remind you of where you're investing your time and your talents and treasures. That if you're investing for eternity, you're guaranteed to win. If you're investing here, you're guaranteed to lose. And so we need it. We need the weekly readjustment and the realignment and the reminder and the encouragement that it, it, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. It's why the gathering of God's people, and I think why the pandemic has been such a blow to the church, because not being able to gather, and I think those who have drifted away, they've forgotten what it was like to weekly be encouraged by simply just being in the room with other believers to go, I'm not the only one in this city that believes this. There are hundreds of other people who are walking with me, and yes, I might not even see them through the rest of the week, We live in our own neighborhoods, we work in our own places, but we come together and we strengthen one another and we fellowship one another and we're like, head out that door and live one more week for the glory of God. The second reason that you might not trust God and trust yourself instead is that you've convinced yourself that your financial well-being is all on you. And a lot of Christians live this way. And if we were to ask the question, am I putting God first or me first, I think most of us, and probably, probably everybody in this room, would want to say, well, of course I'm putting God first. But if we looked at the practical details of our life, what would our calendars and our checkbooks tell us? Do you remember what a checkbook is? <laughs> Young people, there were, used to be these paper things we would write on, and we would give them in place of cash. We've all heard that line, first things first. First things first. So, one of the principles, a key principle to amassing wealth that every single financial planner will tell you if you sit down with them is this principle, they will tell you, pay yourself first. Pay yourself first. So, in fact, you can even get your employer to do it for you is even better. That you don't even see the money, it never goes into your bank account, they take it off your paycheck and they dump it over into some RSP or whatever. Pay yourself first and in the same way, The Bible challenges us in this whole area of our trust in God to always put Him first, and specifically in this context of trusting God in money matters. And you see, the original listeners would have been drawn back to their Old Testament heritage, like they were Jewish believers in the first century. The only training they had in money was Old Testament principles. And the Old Testament principle was this, honor God with the first and the best of all you have, the first and the best. If you do a study of first things in the Old Testament, it's a fascinating study that you would honor God with the first and with the best. It's a fascinating study. The first thing in the Old Testament carried much, much importance. Uh, You would see it in the firstborn child. The firstborn child, for whatever reason, was an extra special child. They would get a double portion of the blessing. That first child would be dedicated fully to the Lord. And so parents literally bought back that child. They redeemed that child. They took an offering to buy back the firstborn child who was to be given to God. And when the inheritance came, the first child got double the inheritance. That is not fair. I'm the seventh of eight kids. Why should my oldest sister get double the amount? But that's just the way it was. There was something important about the first. And and the first thing reminds us, it gives testimony to the fact that God is good. God is in control. It all comes from Him. God is blessing us. So every principle that they lived with an agrarian culture, the first of every crop belonged to God. The first of their herds, the first animal to, to, to come out of the womb was given to God. The first of their prophets, the first of their produce, the first portion was always God's because it reminded them that it all comes from his hand. So I give the first thing back to him to remind him and to remind me, I know it comes from you, God. So Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth, and right here's the first phrase, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with wine. So, just one Old Testament story to illustrate this. Uh, the children of Israel come out of Egypt. They've been slaves for 40 years or for 400 years. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they're going into the promised land, and the Lord says to them over and over and over again when you get into that land, you're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have houses you didn't build and wells you didn't drill and crops and fields that are cultivated that you didn't cultivate. I'm giving it all to you. I promised it to your father Abraham 400 years ago. Now it's going to be yours. But when you get in there, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. He says don't forget like 100 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because you're going to get there, and in our vernacular, we'd say, okay, so when there's a little food in the deep freeze, when there's a little money at the end of the month that you can put into savings, there's clothes in the closet, you've got a roof over your head, it's so easy to forget, because I'm not in need, I live in this land of milk and honey. I need to tell you, we all live in the land of milk and honey. We do. So it's easy for us to forget. And so he says, remind yourself. And he put this principle in place that the first things belong to God. And he did it at the macro level. And I don't know if you've thought about this. The very first battle scene at Jericho, the entire city, the spoils of that entire city were to be given to God. So they go in, they march around the city. Seven days, they march around the walls. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. They blow their trumpets, and literally, the walls of the city fall down. They, they conquer the city, and they're told, don't take a single item. All of these spoils are to be given to God, and He's gonna bless you unless not a thing. Now, if you know the story, you'll know that a couple weeks later, they go up the, the, the valley to, to a little place called Ai, just a small town, there's a little battle. They don't even send the whole army, because it's like, it's such a small town, and they are utterly defeated. And Joshua is on his face before God, and he's like, God, what went wrong? He's like, I'll tell you what went wrong. There's sin in the camp. Sin in the camp what? He goes, yeah. Remember all those things that were to be dedicated to me back in Jericho? Well, that didn't happen. So they go through the people, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, down to man by man, and finally he meets a guy named Achan. And Joshua says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. And so you see the progress in that passage of Scripture. I I saw it, and then I coveted it, and then I took it. And it could so well describe so much of what drives our greedy culture today. I saw it. And not then I just saw it, but then I wanted it. I I coveted it. I, I had to have it. It's precious. So I took it. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on that passage, says this. Achan's sin becomes even more odious when you stop to realize all that God had done for him. God had cared for him and his family in the wilderness. He had brought them safely across the Jordan and and given the the, the army victory at Jericho. And yet, in spite of all these wonderful experiences, Achan disobeyed God just to possess some wealth that he couldn't even enjoy. Had he just waited a day or two, he could have gathered all the spoils he wanted from the victory in Ai. What a tragic story. But the principle in that is that the first thing belongs to God. You you can't serve both God and money, and you break the power of money over your life by giving the first thing to God. So the question is, who are you going to trust? I'm sure all of you have held U.S. currency in your hands, right? Some vacation you've had, you probably have some U.S. currency hanging around the house. Uh, It's an interesting thing that on U.S. currency, those four little words, in God we trust. So they were printed on the coins way back from the mid 1800s, but not on the paper currency, and in 1957, a guy from Florida, one of the senators or representatives in the House, brings this bill forward to say, we need to start putting it on the currency as well, on the paper money. Why? And it's interesting, his dialogue, because he says this, 1957, so 70 years ago, nothing can be more certain than that our country was founded in a spiritual atmosphere and with a firm trust in God. I'd like to just put a period there and broadcast that all across North America again, right? How we need that reminder? With the sentiment of trust in God, while the sentiment of trust in God is universal and timeless, these particular four words, in God we trust, are indigenous to our country. Can you imagine a congressman today standing up and saying that? That these four words are indigenous to North American culture. What defines North Americans? These four words, in God we trust. You're like, really? Don't think so anymore. In these days when imperialistic and materialistic communism seek to attack and destroy our freedom, we should continually look for ways to strengthen the foundations of our freedom. And adding in God we trust to our currency serves as a constant reminder that the nation's political and economic fortunes are tied to its spiritual faith. It was a significant decision to literally say every time you pull out a dollar bill, five, ten, twenty, doesn't matter what it is, you see on that that piece of paper, that valuable piece of paper, this reminder, no, 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 it's not about money, it's about God. In God, we trust because He is our provider. So, you can debate over lunch whether you think the USA is still living by that model, whether Canada lives by that model, but the question is this, do we believe God's, what God's Word tells us that we can trust in God? Do I trust God enough to believe that He will take care of me, that, that I can give Him my first and best, and He'll look after me? So in other words, it gets really practical. When I sit down to pay my bills or put some money in savings, is, is the first check or the first e-transfer I make given to God? Or does it come way down the line of priorities? Uh, I, I mentioned that that Carolyn's folks and my folks taught us, and it, I'm, I'm so glad they did. So as a kid, my first job as a 9- or 10-year-old, so I wanted to go bowling, and I know that's really exciting. I was a just a stellar athlete, right, as a kid, bowling, but it was ten-pin bowling. So I'm in grade two or three, whatever it was, and after school you could bowl uh, three rounds of bowling and your shoes included for two bucks. And my folks said, "That's fine. You want to bowl? You're going to pay for it yourself." So what does a nine-year-old kid do back in those days? Well, in Cortez, Colorado, you could buy the local paper, came out twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you could buy it for a nickel and sell it for a dime. So me and half a dozen other little boys were standing to the newspaper office every morning, 6 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, to buy a stack of newspapers for a nickel and then run through all the cafes as people are coming out to go to work and sell them for a dime, and on a good day, I could make two or three bucks. And I'm so glad that my parents from the very beginning told me every dollar you make, the first dime on that dollar is God's dime. So you give that dime in your Sunday school offering. I didn't even question it as a kid because mom and dad told me it was true. It was like the first bit belongs to God. You know how you're able to run around on the streets and have that energy to go sell those newspapers? God gave you the ability to do that. So you need to honor God. I'm so glad they taught me that young. It's never been a debate for us. But the question underlying this text is, in whom will I trust? In Philippians 4.19, God says this, my God, Paul says it, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we literally could talk for hours about this topic. And the topic really is the faithfulness of God. And obviously, I have no clue where you stand today. I don't know what financial worries you might have. I don't know if this message lands for you, if it, it blesses you, or if it ticks you off. But I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would have some challenge for each one of us today. But, but the bottom line is this. You will only put your trust in somebody that you actually think is trustworthy, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. You only put your trust in somebody you believe is absolutely trustworthy. So who do we look for to model this full abandon of trust to God and how God responds? And, of course, there was one that we looked to. There was one who was asked to give up absolutely everything. There was one who was asked to fully trust the will of the Father. There was one who left behind everything. He left the glories of heaven. It said he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to, but he willingly took the form of a servant. He took on human flesh and he came and dwelt among us. He, he went so far in his servanthood that he followed it all the way to the path of the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death. We're told that he, became, he who was rich became poor. And you're like, why would he do that? Because he saw a long-range investment ahead of him. Because the investment that he was investing himself in, God was looking for the souls of men and women and boys and girls, and the purchase price for the souls of men and women and boys and girls would cost Jesus Christ absolutely everything, 100%. Nothing held back. And in the greatest test that was in front of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he has to make that final decision, am I going to go through with it or not? Am I going to surrender to the will of the Father? Am I going to walk the road to Calvary? Or am I going to walk away? And of course, his response was not my will, but your will be done, Father. And so, with his eyes on the goal set before him, the long-range investment of the cross, Hebrews tells us he endured the cross for the joy set before him, the joy of his investment. And then on the third day, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday, right? He walked out of the tomb fully alive, and now he gets the reward: the first fruits from the grave, the first and the best. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus was the first and the best. He's called the first fruits. Of many more to come, a symbol and a foretaste of what is to come. In other words, Jesus trusted the Father to provide in every situation. Jesus released his entirety, his life, everything into the control of the Father and of his plans. And so, too, we can trust Jesus, not only for our salvation, but we can trust him to meet every need. Amen? And so the question is simply this. Will you invest in eternal things? Because on first reading, you might read through it and say, yeah, that text is all about money. But far deeper than money, it goes to this fundamental issue. Who are you going to entrust your life to? You're fragile. Soon to pass, only one life will soon be over life. Time flies by. And I hope and pray that each one of you have trusted Christ for salvation, And then I also trust and pray that you're taking that additional step of entrusting every aspect of your daily life to him. So how the children of the God are to relate to money, children of the kingdom, we're to use it joyfully for the glory of God, we're to keep our eyes on the long-range goal, and we're to trust the Father to meet every need. So let me pray for you. Why don't you stand together with me, and the band's going to come, we'll pray, and we'll head into communion. So Lord Jesus, uh, you know what these men and women need to hear from your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take some message from a passage of Scripture from one of these thoughts, and then they would be able to take it home and chew it over and ponder it in their mind. But Lord, the, the bottom line of this text is that you, Jesus, are the one that we place our trust in fully, and that you willingly laid your life down. And even, even as we come now around the communion table and we're reminded our, ourselves that you gave absolutely everything, that you literally took on the form of a servant, you willingly laid your life down, you willingly spilt your blood and allowed your body to be broken on our behalf. And as Peter reminds us, our our souls were purchased not with silver and gold, not with money, but with precious blood, the blood of our Savior Jesus. And so you gave everything in trust to the Father because you had the joy of a long-range investment set in front of you. And so Lord, I pray that those principles would be true in our lives that we could see how walking with you and trusting you daily and living for eternal things brings such joy and blessing. So Lord, take something from this message, seal it to our hearts, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.